originally planned to do this whole chapter today, and then I dove deeper into verses 15 through 22 and realized that it was going to be a whole lot more fun to run around in a minefield in these seven or eight verses. So I hope you're excited. We're going to be in verses 15 through 22. I've titled the message today, Jesus, Hypocrites, and the Government. (laughs) I'll let you figure out who's who. Yeah. So I'm in my upper 40s, and I grew up in a rural town in northwest Mississippi. So the church was still central in the early 80s, still very central, especially in small towns, southern United States, to all of the social fabric of your life. Virtually everybody still went to church. If you were really conservative, you went to the Presbyterian church uh, you know, down the road. If you were pretty conservative, you went to the Baptist church, USA, you went to the Methodist church. And if you were like, I don't know about that guy, you were PC, USA. Presbyterian Church, you know, I said, we're down that, you know, that, that, but still, you went to church, right? Because you could not be a citizen in good standing in my community and not really be a member in good standing at a church. Those things were synonym. Wow. Held hands. They had to go together. And Rodney said this in Sunday school this morning. Wow. Have times changed, right? In our, in our, uh, in our culture today, that is entirely optional, if not a hindrance to a successful political career um, as, a, as a politician. Um, between dynamic and our culture is such that the things that we would assume to be true about the relationship between the church and the state and our own individual lives and the government have shifted dramatically just in my very young lifetime, okay? So um, when we read this passage today, it may blow your mind. Because that was the effect in this passage had on the earth. What Jesus says in one pithy statement in verse at the end of this passage today completely changed the world. And it's been interpreted and applied in different ways in different states over the last 2,000 years. States meaning nation states, governments, ethnic, ethnic groups as nations. Or older but because of the shift that we've all experienced, if those of you that are old, my age or older in particular, if you're a millennial, you're like, oh, this is normal. No, it's not normal if you're Gen X or older. We've had to pivot and shift. So the text is particularly applicable to us right, right now. Okay, so we'll, this is where we're going to be. We're going to take our time. I may look down a little bit more today because I want to be super careful and intentional with my words, which is really scary because if I say something and it's really wrong, it was intentional. <laughs> So just hold on to my membership for another week. We'll let it dust settle, okay? All right. You know, get me through Memorial Day. That'd be great. All right. Do you know what a a false dilemma fallacy is? False dilemma fallacy. This is a logical fallacy that's presented to you in the form of an either-or scenario. And the person will only give you limited options in this logical dilemma fallacy um, under the guise that those are the only two options that you have, when in reality you have a whole lot more than the ones that are being presented to you, right? So this is a really good tactic to you. Actually, it's a, it's a, if you understand fallacy, it's not that good of a tactic, but it is used often, right? When you're trying to push someone or someone's trying to push you into choosing one of two options, right? So they'll, they'll, the, um, 
they'll give a false d dilemma. Um, will, there'll be, um, the one option will be the one they want you to choose. The other one will be something undesirable that they don't want you to choose. And the aim is to get the person to choose the desired option or at least trap them, trap that person into choosing something that discredits them in some way. That's a false dilemma fallacy, okay? And it's pretty powerful because it can make a, one option seem like it's the best option when in fact the situation that they're bringing up is really quite complex and you could have lots of different choices. Okay, for example, either you go to college or you're poor for the rest of your life. And that's a false dilemma fallacy, right? Either you're a vegetarian or you hate animals. Okay? I love animals. They're delicious, right? So the, like, it's a false dilemma, right? Like, here's one, a little more pertinent to the text. You can either vote Republican or Democrat. Ooh, false dilemma. You could write anybody's name in there. There are lots of names on the ballot most of the time, right? False dilemma fallacy. This is the method. This is the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians bring to Jesus in our passage today. Look at verses 15 through 17. The Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him, Jesus, by what he said. Trap. So... They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So you see the false dilemma that is put before Jesus. Is it lawful? And then, then the phrase, as a Jew, is implied, to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Okay, So they've presented Jesus with a false dilemma in the hopes that he will choose one or the other. That if he chooses, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar as a Jew, then he portrays himself, or at least gives him the opportunity to talk about him as a traitor to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people group, right? Or if he says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be identified as someone who is in support of Roman rule and then would be rejected by most Jews at the time, okay? So if he gets labeled either one of these things, Jesus' ministry is done for. So it feels like a really good trap, and there are two good reasons for this. So if you take the, the coin that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, is a denarius. It's a Roman coin. If you had a Roman coin, a denarius, it would have two sides, just like your coins. And on one side, in Latin, it would say, most of the time, Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, Son of the divine Augustus, son of God, which you should add that to your layers of thinking whenever you hear Jesus being talked about as the son of God. Okay. On the other side, there was a picture of a woman who was wearing a, um, uh, she would be seated and she, she would have, maybe she would have, uh, you know, like a grass crown on her head, like leaves. And, um, and she was a symbol for the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And it may have even been a picture of Caesar's wife, Livia, right? And there it said on the back, God and high priest. So on one side, son of God, 
And on the other side, God and high priest. So you can understand as a Jew, that might irk you. Remember in the temple, when you were bringing such coins into the temple, they would say, your money's no good here. You get temple coins instead, and they would, you would turn in your Roman coins to the Pharisees. I'm coming to that. And they would give you temple coins and said to God, because they didn't want to accept under the pretense of not accepting graven images and idolatry written under the coins, right? Those inscriptions did not fare well with the Ten Commandments, just to pick a couple, okay? So there's some weight to, the, to, the, to this conversation that's going on here, not just the trap. Like, there's some real weight here. Also, there's some history, very recent history, that is uh, behind this, this conversation. So if you go back, see, Jesus is probably 30, 30, 34. So maybe seven, eight, nine years in A.D. 6 or 7, this Roman poll tax was implemented. By the way, the tax was a, was a day's wage a year. It's one denarius for a commoner's wage for the day a year. You pay a 1,000% more taxes than that. Okay, so just put that into your context. And sales, and I mean, it's just, it's absurd. Okay, That's, I'm not making a governmental statement. Okay, it's not a political statement. I'm just saying, put it in context. The Romans gave plumbing, streets, <laughs> concrete, right? Clean water, safety for a wage a year, a day's wage a year. That's what you had to pay. Okay, so if you go back to AD 6 or 7 when this was going on, the Jews did not like it. And there was a gentleman who was uh, bubbled up to the top of this kind of revolution, and his name was Judas of Galilee. Now, if you go back to the Maccabean period, remember Judas Maccabeus? He's the one who read the revolution of the, that led to Hanukkah. Okay, he's named after that guy. So it runs deep, right? And he was a political zealot, and he led a, 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 um, a revolt against Rome over this tax, no taxation without, no, that's not what he said, but this, but you understand, he's leading that revolt, and he's, and his baseline was, there is no king other than God, true theological statement, so I'm not paying your tax, and the Romans said, okay, and they killed all of them, and they crucified them along the road, so that as you walked, you saw their bodies hanging from crosses, which sent a very clear message. Pay a small tax or pay a big price. Okay? Now do you feel the weight of this little argument that Jesus is having with Pharisees and Herodians? Caesar is claiming to be God on the coin. Romans have killed Jews over their protests. So... With all that in mind, how would Jesus respond? Look at verse 18. Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, hypocrites? <laughs> I love that. Not because he's you know, snarky. I just love that he cuts to the point. The, the thing that I want you to see is that Jesus knows what's up here. They're setting a trap, and Jesus is keen to the trap. Okay? Anybody with a fair amount, and it's not just because he's Jesus, okay? This is not a miracle that he's doing because he's divine. Anybody with a little bit of discernment could have seen the malice in their heart here, right? Because, I mean, just go back and look at the verse, uh, verse um, 16. We know that you are truthful 
and teach true inputs on the way of God. I mean, they put more butter on Jesus than Abby Jane puts on her toasted bagels in the morning. I mean, he is, they are syrupy, okay? They're, they're all over him. And they've got Herodians with them. These are uh, followers of Herod, supporters of Rome, who rarely, if ever, would partner with Pharisees. So the fact that they've come together, it smells weird, okay? And so anybody with some discernment could have known what was going on here. But Jesus says, why are you trying to trap me? I'm keen to what's going on. But then he calls them hypocrites. What's hypocritical about this moment? If it's not super clear to you, it's because there's so much hypocrisy, you almost don't know where to start. Okay. So it's like in The Princess Bride. You know, just a matter of time before another Princess Bride reference made it into a sermon. Where Wesley has been mostly dead, which is slightly alive, and he takes the chocolate, they call it a pill, but it's this large. I'm not sure... Why that didn't make the B-budget movie, but they fixed that. Anyway, so he takes this chocolate-covered pill because it makes it go down easier, and he comes to, after being mostly dead, and he says, he's completely disoriented. Where am I? What am I doing? And Inigo Montoya looks at him and says, let me explain. And then he pauses for a minute, and he goes, there's too much. Let me sum up, (laughs) right? That's basically what's going on here because Jesus just cuts to it. There's so much hypocrisy that it's hard to even know where to begin. They are hypocrites uh, for masking their malice. Their true intent was to trap Jesus, but their words and their actions are giving off this pretense like they're just there to have a goodwill debate. They're hypocrites. They are hypocrites because they already have a very firm theological opinion about the tax. They hated the tax. They didn't want to pay the tax. But here they were, the very thing they hate, using, and if you remember, the person that they hate. They're hypocrites. And if you remember, like I said, they used this currency to their own advantage as temple leaders. Okay? So in a show of holiness, they would tell pilgrims, no, 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 your money's no good to God. You've got to give us your Roman money Give us your denarii. We'll give you temple coins at a really bad rate. And so the Pharisees end up being the ones enriched with Roman coins. They're the ones who are supposedly separate in their holiness, but they are the ones benefiting from Rome's wealth and power. We could go on. So Jesus says, you are hypocrites. There's There's a fine line between being hypocritical, acting hypocritical, or, and, and then being, like it's part of your identity. And Jesus labels this as a part of their identity. Why are you trying to trap me, hypocrites? Not, why are you behaving in a way that's somewhat hypocritical? He goes for the label, okay? This is really important for us to just pause on the hypocrisy thing here because hopefully in this story, you are beginning to come to terms with the fact that maybe you're not completely above board when it comes to your own life. Hopefully you are identifying with the hypocrites, not with Jesus in the story. Okay? So in this story, Jesus 
takes, the, takes their malice, takes their hypocrisy, and he doesn't ignore that just to have the goodwill debate. He has them in mind, and he, in his grace and his prophetic truth, reaches out to them to speak to their hypocrisy, to expose who they are in their hearts. Because if you remember from the Sermon on the Mount, until you are poor in spirit, you cannot be filled with righteousness. So they've got to get there. And Jesus, in his grace, uses their shortcomings, their false dilemmas, their hypocrisy, to push them to examine themselves. And he does the same thing for you and I. Jesus uses our shortcomings and our hypocrisy to push us to examine ourselves and see our need for grace. So when you and I demand of God that he explain himself to us according to our perceptions, that's the same as presenting him with a dilemma. We say, God... You're either doing this or you're that, or you're doing that, and I don't like either one, so tell me which one you're up to and explain yourself to me so that you can then apologize and make this go away, go the way that I want it to go. We give God a false choice. We don't know, but he's good. And our hypocrisy, as terrible as it is, is not an obstacle to the grace of Jesus, as is evidenced in this passage. To my point last week about limiting grace, even when they have malicious intent, Jesus is gracious to expose reality and, and, and put them into a place to wrestle with it. And he does the same for us. More than we'd like to admit, we approach God with, not, excuse me, not only do we not approach God with pure motives, but when we, when we do approach him, he has a way of exposing our hypocrisy and we can fear that Jesus will reject us in that moment, but he doesn't. Y'all, our inconsistencies, our hypocrisy, our false dilemmas, our argumentation, our trying to put God into his place are not obstacles to grace they're not obstacles to grace they are sin but sin is what he came to beat and he lived this out as the person of Jesus in this moment which begs the question of a church who represents who is who embodies the gospel in its ministry do we allow the hypocrisy and the false dilemmas and the impure motives of those who would approach Christians or approach the church, do we allow that to be an obstacle when we minister to them? Or are we able to love them just where they are and start where they are and then take the steps of bringing Jesus to bear on the relationship? It's a gracious ministry that we bring. Okay, how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 19. Jesus dismantles the false dilemma. He's for them, and now he's going to answer their question. Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them, and I've told you. And they said, Caesar's, they said. Right, and then, verse 31, Jesus said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God 
the things that are God's. So in one of the most famous sayings of the Gospels, Jesus avoids the trap. And he does it by affirming both what the Pharisees and the Herodians hold dear. He affirms them both. And there are two implications that I want you to see, and then we're going to double-click on both of those, okay? And a whole file is going to open up underneath about us and our relationship to our government, okay? And this is where it gets a little hot in here, okay? So the first implication is this, of Jesus' statement. Governmental leadership in every nation the world has ever or will ever see is stewardship. Leadership is stewardship, okay? Meaning it's temporary and will all be held accountable to God. Leadership is stewardship, meaning it's temporary and we're accountable to God. So in this moment, when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, he is saying that there are two spheres here. The one of God and the one of the state. The one of God and the one of government. And they are separate, but one is submissive to the other. The God of the, the sphere of government is submissive to, um, underneath the sphere of God. Because everything belongs to God, including government. Including government. So whatever authority or influence a government has, it is, by definition, subordinate to God and His reign. Okay? So any government authority that exists derives from God, even Caesar, who thought he was God. Jesus looking at a coin that with a picture of a human being that he made says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So leadership that Caesar has is stewardship because it's submissive to, subordinate to the reign of God, okay, the sphere of God, which means, number two, Our allegiance to our government is shaped by God's superior authority over the government. Our relationship to the government is submissive to, subordinate to the relationship we have to God as the ultimate authority of this universe. So if Caesar tells us to do something that God prohibits, we don't do it. We don't. But if Caesar tells us to do something that God doesn't prohibit but we don't like, we do it with a smile on our face. Even if you can't see that smile behind the mask. Ooh, remember those days? Ouch, pastor. Glad you weren't a member then. Okay. So, and there is the rub. Living in that reality with our government. That was easier in 1984. It is very difficult, more difficult in 2023, but Jesus' statement still stands. He doesn't tease it all out. We got to do the mind work. We got to add Romans 13 and 2 Peter. We got to do some of the things to get there, but the statement still stands. Okay? So we've got to live within these two spheres and how they relate to one another. And it just seemed to me like this is a good text to do that before election season kicks in. So living faithfully according to this teaching of Jesus has gotten very difficult. And so we've got to patiently 
and graciously and calmly and thoughtfully by the power of the Spirit and in our own conscience work with this truth and try to understand from time to time how these two spheres go together, okay? Southern Baptist Faith and Message. If you are a member, we have a statement of faith. The Southern Baptist Faith and Message. If you are a member here, you signed the document that you believe it. All right? So I'm getting ready to blow it up by reading what you all say you already know, okay? Right? And the statement of faith is an application of Jesus' statement here, but that statement is made in our Western context. It doesn't work in China. It's not the Bible. It's a statement of faith. It's an application of our faith in our context as Southern Baptist in the United States. So I'm just going to read three sentences from our statement of faith that come out of this text and that uh, and, and illustrate for you how they get applied. So here's what our Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says. Here's one sentence. No ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Christian, no religious, or that's not Christian, that's religion. I'm talking about any religion should be favored by the state more than others. Several years ago, it's at the Southern Baptist Convention, always a good time, by the way. Woohoo! Smoke if you got them. I mean, it's great. They had a blast. Okay. And I know, I'm sorry, that was not in the notes. It's so stressful every year because you're like, it's the largest business meeting ever. And it's just, oh my gosh, this could go so wrong, you know, every time. But the Lord is faithful most, he is all the time. He's always faithful. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't go the way I want it to because I'm a hypocrite. But several years ago, our ethics and religious leadership council in the Southern Baptist Convention supported a, uh, some, some laws, or I can't remember to be precise the exact nature of the thing, but there were policies in place in some state, in a state or two, that were prohibiting Muslims from building synagogues because they were Muslim. And Southern Baptists said, that's wrong. Why? Because no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state over another. And if you're deliberately not choosing one, then you are, in essence, supporting another, showing favor toward others. And that is not Baptist at all. It's not Christian at all. It's not Jesus because there are things that Caesar has and there are things that God has. So we supported that. And someone stood up and said, are you telling me that Baptists are in support of idolatry? No, we're saying give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's. What is God's? And if you want, you do not want the state telling you who can be a religion and who cannot. Because just as soon as they support Christianity, the next generation, they'll be supporting somebody else and you will be in a bad spot, brother. So we support all religions as Southern Baptist. Being free from the state. It's in your statement of faith. Statement number two. And I'm just picking like three of the 15, okay? Civil government... Being ordained by God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things that are not contrary to the will of God. 
to the revealed will of God, right? That's why I say God is superior, Caesar is subordinate, and if Caesar asks us to do something that is not contrary to the revealed will of God, then we express loyal obedience. Loyal obedience. Just like you expect of your kids, right? Slow obedience is no obedience. I don't know if you've ever tried that one. It doesn't work. The law is worthless in this regard. Y'all, the pandemic alone was enough to crush thousands of pastors because of the fighting over whether or not gathering online from March to July of 2020 was gathering in obedience to the scriptures to worship. Some of us equated mask mandates that God did not and does not prohibit. We equated that with praying to King Darius and Daniel. Okay? And we crushed our churches over this. We destroyed one another over this. We left congregations to find one that agreed with our opinion over this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And trust the authority of the God of the universe over the God of any government. And this is number three. And this is perhaps the weightiest. I've been, if you think it's been heavy, oh brother, where art thou? I mean, this, here, here's an example Bonhoeffer, okay? Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran, a good, a great Lutheran growing up in Nazi Germany, realizes, oh no, my government is eradicating an entire ethnic group. And the Lutheran Church of the State supported Hitler and turned their back to the Jewish people. And Bonhoeffer read Jesus and said, I can't be a Christian and do that. So I'm going to Rebel. I'm not going to obey the state because it's asking me to do something that is contrary to the revealed will of God. If Daniel, I'm not going to pray to Darius. And he was persecuted. I'll eat his food. But I'm not going to pray to him. And he was persecuted for it. Protected, but persecuted. Okay? Those are things that are under the revealed of God. So we're not going to break those, Caesar. But there are things that the government's going to ask you to do that are not contrary to the will of God. You may hate because you're a Republican or a Democrat, but you're going to do them with loyal obedience because you submit to the Father. And that's the Christian witness to the world. Okay, number three. That was just more number two. Here's number three. This is what our statement of faith says. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The church, that's you and me, does not resort to the government to carry on the church's work. In other words, church and state are like bread, right? We don't believe that because Jefferson wrote it in a letter. We believe it because we believe that is exactly what Jesus is communicating in Matthew 15, 21 and 22. Okay? So this has been utterly fascinating and terrifying to watch over the last two decades. 
which is when I really started paying attention to this stuff, okay? So at the risk of oversimplification, here is my counsel to you. I, I love you. I hope you love me still, okay? I want you to be a Christian patriot, but do not be a Christian nationalist. That's what I think the application of this text is. I want you to proclaim the resurrection to your country that you love, but please avoid an insurrection. So what is this? How we, Rob, what do you mean? Okay, I mean advocate for a biblical view of marriage and sexuality and gender and life. Our preciousness of life, abortion and, and violence and domestic violence, all those things. Our nation would be way better by affirming the goodness of many of the things that we teach as, in this church, right? So I want you to love your country very well by advocating for these things. Run for office. Support the laws. Elect the candidates. Create the content. Say helpful and gracious things in support of the biblical view. Do it nicely, please, nicely. You're not trying to argue. You're trying to debate, and there is a difference. You're trying to present reality to be wrestled with. You are trying to do it in love. You're trying to speak truth in love. Do all of those things. That's what I mean by being a Christian patriot. I love this country. I love you guys. I want us to be the best country in the world. That's why I'm advocating for the things that line up with the teachings of Jesus, and I'm going to do it with the best mark, and I'm going to represent him in the same way that he lived toward anim- with the, these people who are so animous toward him. He still loved the sake of attempting to no, I'm going to do that. Do that. Okay? Do that. But don't make the mistake of attempting to make people in this country become Christians through the use of your government. It's a huge difference. Do not resort to the civil power to carry on the work of the church. That's what I mean by not an insurrection. Preach the resurrection. That'll bring about what you want. And it's not the government's job to preach the resurrection. It's your job. It's my job. It's this church's job. If we've learned anything in our study of Matthew, it's that this Jesus' kingdom is not a political kingdom. Okay? It's a kingdom that grows by the power of the Spirit through persuasion and by choice, not compulsion and forcing people to be adherent to certain laws that we want them to have. And so we're going to participate and we're going to advocate for the biblical view. But that's kind of like our part-time job. It's like our side hustle. Our full-time job is to do the work of the ministry of the church. Not make the government do it on our behalf. I, I just It concerns me. Some of the things that I read, some of the things that because I pay too much attention to this kind of stuff, it concerns me that we are given up on the power of the gospel and are trying to use the power of... Oh, the Supreme Court, Congress. Pick your branch that we, we want to use those things more than we want to share the gospel and just love Jesus and, and tell everybody about him. Like we've given up on that. And it's heartbreaking because it's actually a sin. It's not giving to Caesar what is Caesar's and giving to God's what is God's. It's using the government when we should be being the church. Listen, if it can't be true in China for you as a Christian, then you shouldn't be in the United States either. Does that make sense? If Jesus can say, this man thinks he's a god, pay him what he is due as a governmental authority. He's just, it's just, boss. Jesus is saying, 
it, it's all going to wash out because I'm the ultimate boss. One Baptist theologian put it this way. I can't tell you names anymore because you'll make, think, well, he's reading that person and he believes everything he says. Like, that's where we are now, right? So one very Baptist theologian from the Midwest, okay? He's got a clean accent and a clean profile, okay? You've probably heard him as a customer service rep at some point in his childhood, okay? He says, we advocate for the end of abortion, but we don't kill doctors who perform abortions. We can march and protest, but we don't form mobs of destruction. We work to elect candidates of integrity and conviction, but we do not harass public officials at school board meetings or with stickers, I'm going to add, or with stickers at gas stations or chants about Brandon. It's not Jesus. And society, under this every Christian, should seek to bring industry, government and society under the sway of the principles of righteousness and truth and love. Do that. Please do that. But in order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the truth. Love without compromise to the loyalty of Christ and His truth. Amen? All right. Number final. Look at verse 22. Look, because the, Jesus just changed the world. It's only theocracy, only monarchy, and even those monarchs thought they were God or the Son of God. Jesus just destroyed all of that in one sentence. So they, in verse 22, were amazed. Not, I don't think it's because he got out of the trap, although that's certainly part of it. I think it's because they were like, wait a minute. And the implications for what he had just said blew their minds. And you know what they did when he blew their minds? They walked away. Congregation, don't, don't walk away. Don't walk away. Do not marvel at the teachings of Jesus and the gospel and walk away. Marvel and worship. Marvel and follow. When Jesus walked on water and rescued Peter, they worshipped him, right? And when Jesus wowed the Pharisees, they abandoned him. No sooner, no sooner did Jesus say, give to God what is God's, did the Pharisees abandon God. And in fact, I don't think this happens in Matthew, but it happens in the Gospel of John. Jesus is arrested and he's on you know, this public trial, and the Jews would yell out to Pilate, we have no God but Caesar. They walked away. Don't let that be you. By the power of your spirit and of your own volition, be amazed and follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we want to have a time of, of reflection and response to this earth-shattering teaching where as a, as a Jew, you say, <laughs> give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You did not equate taxes. You did not equate 
obedience to the government as something to die on a hill over inasmuch if those things did not contradict the revealed will of God. And so we ask that you would empower us as Christians to live under the truth of this statement. In, in, in communism, in any context, in, in, in communism, in socialism, in, in republics, in democracies, in monarchies, it is a powerful witness to say, I'm giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, and I'm giving to God's what is God, because no matter who Caesar is at this one point in time and place in history, he or she submits to the authority of God. And when that person says, no, I'm going to ask you to do something that's contrary to God, I'm going to say, nope. But until that day, I'm going to say, yes, loyal obedience, because what belongs to Caesar, give back to Caesar. That's a marvelous statement. May we worship you and enjoy you for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.